Hi, and welcome to Women at Warp. Join us as our crew of four women Star Trek fans boldly go on our bi-weekly mission to explore our favorite franchise. My name is Sue, and thanks for tuning in. We have the whole crew here today. There's Jara. Hello. Andy. Hey. And Grace. Hey. And today we are celebrating our third podcast anniversary. Woo! We now officially have more episodes than Star Trek the original series. Suck it, Kirk. <laughs> <laughs> For our podcast anniversary, we decided to take a look at the classic TNG episode Shades of Grey. So we're going to be discussing it in depth and talking about the themes presented with uh, you know, Riker getting, I don't know, shocks to the brain or whatever happens in that episode. Except we're not doing that at all. <laughs> what? We're not? I watched that episode again for no reason? <laughs> Damn you, Sue. <laughs> I think that what Shades of Grey teaches us is that you should not do a clip show after only two seasons. You should wait three seasons. <laughs> <laughs> I think that that's a very wise observation, Jara. Otherwise, you probably will have only made out with like 10 space babes. <laughs> <sighs> so we're doing a clip show. Yeah, clip show. It's a good way to save money. Oh, wait. <laughs> I was going to say like it's the, it's easy, but it actually was not easy when it was a lot of work. So I hope y'all enjoy it. Yes. Um, Andy gets massive props for the editing of this episode. But basically <laughs> we each uh, we have um, around 80 episodes by now. Exactly 80. This is 81. And then the supplementals. Yeah. That's not, yeah, not even counting all our supplementals. So we, we each went through and we sort of picked what we thought were some highlights from some of the conversations we've had. And it's including, you know, funny moments, moments where we had special guests, moments where we talked about deep stuff getting real on Star Trek. And moments where we remind everyone that Pulaski banged Riker's dad. Yes, exactly. So far, the, on the only quote that's been made into a t-shirt design. And we feel like from the context in each clip, you'll understand what we're talking about. But just in case you want a little bit more or you want to go back and listen to the whole episode, we will be putting the, the list that we chose from in our show notes on the website. Oh, come on. Context is for Herberts. <laughs> only losers need context. <laughs> I set you up and you spiked it. <laughs> okay, so... Three years in, I've been consistently surprised and amazed by our awesome listener feedback. Um, we we talk about sometimes some pretty heavy topics, and people have engaged really respectfully and added some really interesting insight on disability and Indigenous representation and sex work and uh, violence against women in Star Trek. And um, it's really cool to see this community of fans coming together and talking uh, respectfully about these issues. I know I come off with some, you know, pretty terrible jokes and all that, but I genuinely want to say thank you all so much for three years of amazing podcasting and meeting new people and having amazing, heartfelt conversations about this show and this franchise that we all care so much about. It has meant the world to, I know me and to my co-hosts, and I know at least for me, it's gotten me through some really rough times knowing that... I have this to come back to, and I have all of you to have listen and to hear back from afterwards. It's an amazing feeling, and here's genuinely hoping for another three years, or because every extra day we get to do this is amazing. For me, one of the things I'm most proud of is that we tackled issues that I don't think very many podcasts would have tackled. I mean... Um, our sexual assault episode and our sex work episode, I feel like those are kind of topics that some, and I mean, not like every, every podcast has to t tackle every topic. I'm just, I'm proud of kind of like, I guess the depth of some of the things that we choose and getting an opportunity to talk about some aspects of Star Trek that might not have been examined very closely in the past. For sure. Yeah. I'm also really happy that it, We've sort of able been able to connect fans of different generations. You know, we know we have heard from people who are listening to us who were growing up with the original series back in the 60s. And we've heard from people who are in high school currently watching Discovery. And we've been able to talk to, you know, Deborah Langsome, to B. Joe Trimble, to the women who 
sort of created sci-fi fandom and are the reasons that we're really doing this here today. Yeah, we've also talked to some of the stars of Star Trek, including Nana Visitor. We've had several people record bumpers for our show to introduce our podcast, and we've made some really cool connections at conventions. And I will never forget the moment when we were talking to Nichelle Nichols, and she told us she wanted to be a woman at warp. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's kind of a screaming out loud moment. Yeah, there's definitely moments where it's like, if I could have told my, you know, 11, 12 year old self that I would be doing this when I was an adult and that it wouldn't be super unacceptable and that people would appreciate it, I would have, it would have been really cool. Past Jera would be proud of you. Yes. Current, future Jera. <laughs> I want to know what color block sweater Jarrah would think of being on stage with Kate Mulder. <laughs> She'd probably just cry and pass out. Pretty, pretty much. <laughs> so we've introduced this enough. Here are some clips looking back over the last 80 episodes. Uh, we hope you enjoy them and there'll be a little bit more information about contacting us, etc. at the end of the show. So Andy or Grace, do one of you want to tell the audience a bit about some of the shows we have planned i'm super excited to talk about the way violence is portrayed against women in star trek in star trek in general but also the original series um that's the the series that i'm watching right now and there have been some super egregious episodes in which violence against women is portrayed very badly and i really really want to dive into that I am personally really looking forward to discussing some of the uh, character trait double standards, like the sort of thing where if you see this characteristic on a male character, it's okay, he's just being a dude. But if you see it on a girl, it's like, oh, what a bitch. Why do we think that automatically, and what are the examples that we have of that peppered throughout Star Trek? Which we really do. <laughs> what about you, Sue? I'm really excited to talk about the Ferengi feminist revolution. Because I think it's interesting to see the development of not only other cultures in Star Trek, but changes within those cultures and how they they react to it amongst themselves and how the, the cultures from the outside react to what's going on internally. Totally. I, you know, we had like that moment in Deep Space Nine where, where Rom uh, quotes from the Communist Manifesto, and I'm kind of sad that we didn't ever have Ishka like actually quoting Earth feminist texts, because that would have just been so amazing. Or like, just have some bell hooks appear in Star Trek. <laughs> yeah, I have seen an Ishka Rosie the Riveter uh, Ferengi <laughs> shirt. Uh, it says, we can do it. We've got the lobes. <laughs> I'm looking forward to talking about the most awesome lady captains other than Janeway. I'm sure we'll talk more about Janeway too later, but um, oh, yeah. there's actually a fair number of, of some pretty cool women captains in Star Trek. So um, I'm excited to talk about people like Rachel Garrett and Erica Hernandez. So yeah, I'm excited. Are you guys excited? Yeah, I'm super excited. Yeah. When I was doing some reading to prep for this episode, I actually came across an article on Tor.com that put forth the idea that Kirk is actually the feminist and Spock is the misogynist. How the hell did that happen? I mean, it's always Spock who has the lines like, well, she's just a woman. Yeah, he does. Like, there's one in The Side of Paradise, too. It's, yeah, and it's really disturbing because he's supposed to be the one who's focused on science. And in many cases, he's arguing that science actually backs up women's inferiority. Um, like they're more emotional, they're more terrified, they're less logical. And that is really a big disappointment to me in the original series. Yeah, it's kind of just a wah wah moment. It's always really bothered me whenever Spock is misogynist. It like hurts more for some reason. And then you can point to the lines that Kirk has in exchanges like, a woman? No, a crewman. Yeah. And it's just strange to think about those characters that way, especially knowing what Leonard Nimoy believed and how he fought for equal pay for Nichelle Nichols yeah. and so on. Well, the big problem here is that the lines, when they're given to Spock and presented by Spock, means that those are what you're supposed to see as logical and sort of infallible. But when the lines are given to Kirk, then they're turned into this radical notion, you know? 
like it's Kirk being like uh, forward thinking in a way beyond what would be we would consider logical, and it's very silly, but that's how the show works. Sadly, I don't I don't have a problem so much with the idea of a creature that feeds on fear. What I do have a problem with is the idea that we needed to make up some sort of space monster to explain violence against women. Like, Jack the Ripper wasn't a murderer, he was an alien that was feeding on fear. And I just think it's kind of a a weird way to go about that. And there's this whole thing when they're figuring it out, and they're talking about, like, the patterns of murder, as if women being murdered is is some noteworthy thing in history. Like, they're, uh, sadly, it's sadly very common. And it feels really weird to me that they, they kind of imply that they're, there's these patterns of history of these this monster that's been killing women as if humans are not fully capable of killing women. Well, maybe there's an implication there that we're supposed to be looking at a future society where that is just sort of unthinkable. I think that's kind of that's the implication there that's like another instance of, well, our culture has evolved past that and it looks barbaric to us, but... They don't really do that very well. Yeah, if that was the case, I think they would take the murders more seriously, but they seem, um, yeah, like we've said from the beginning, it's the people on the planet who are saying, you know, this is an affront to our way of life instead of the Starfleet people. But then you have the computer that's just rattling off this list of similar incidents on other planets where there's a string of murders of women. And I'm just sitting there watching this and like getting sick to my stomach. But, you know, violence against women isn't a problem. I always feel like I've got some kind of moral hangover after I finish watching this show. Well, this episode. We are talking about DS9 Season 2, Episode 7, Rules of Acquisition. So great. It is a really good episode. In in a litany of bad Ferengi episodes so far, this really is a great one. This is the one where um, Quark is, has a new waiter, and this waiter has great business ideas. And then he's sent on this mission for the Grand Nagus and brings this new waiter with him as his consultant. And this new waiter, Pell, turns out to be a woman. She is using fake lobes that she puts over her ears because the women's ears are smaller, right? And essentially binding her chest, even though it's never really said in those terms. Yeah, I really like this episode. I think that it's an interesting tension, like Grace was saying, when you're trying to make these things funny, how seriously can you take them in our own society? So, you know, making the Ferengi sexism funny is kind of problematic. It doesn't really encourage you to treat it as a serious issue now. But there's some really good moments in this, and Pell is really the first woman uh, Ferengi that we get to see, and she really challenges Quark's belief that uh, women are naturally bad at business, uh, naturally stupid. So there's a really cool moment in this episode where Dax and Pell are talking, and Pell uh, confesses that she's in love with Quark, but Dax still thinks that she's a man. And Dax has picked up on the fact that Pell is in love with Quark, and doesn't think that it's at all weird. He's like actually really surprised when Pell says that uh, he doesn't even know I'm a female. And I think that's just a cool understated thing about Dax's openness and uh, not judging um, a same-sex relationship, I think, is pretty cool. Yeah, I noted the same thing watching that episode. Dax is pretty fantastic. I think because of the nature of that character, uh, the writers could do stuff like that without, I don't know, upsetting perhaps some more conservative viewers at the time. Is that fair to say? <laughs> I think so. I think that the downside, though, I, about this episode is um, I don't really love how Dax is so just amused by the Ferengi sexism. Like, there's, uh, the beginning of that scene, she's telling Pell about how adorable it was that Quark made this hollowed sweet fantasy of her childhood bedroom or something and then tried to seduce her in it. And I'm going, like, that is really gross. That's really gross. And she's just like, aw, ha ha ha. Yeah, that is definitely a weird thing about the Ferengi men that we know. We see this with Quark and Rom and Zek, even. That even though they all, at some point, have these very traditional Ferengi beliefs of, of women should be submissive and not have opinions and be naked all the time. They should chew their food, chew yeah, the men's right. food for them. They all are attracted and and flirt with and hit on, whatever you want to call it, these 
sometimes aggressive women. Even the Ferengis can't deny it. Yeah, we see Zek flirting with Kira, and Quark is always after Dax, Jadzia Dax specifically, and Rom ends up with Lita. Also his Klingon girlfriend at one point. Yeah, his Quark's Klingon wife. Yeah. And also the Cardassian yeah, right. scientists he's in love with, or the one he's in love with. Intelligent, independent woman. Like, aggressive was not the right word. I should say outspoken. It's probably confident. confident. Yeah. yeah. Independent. Aware. Certainly not about to take any of the Ferengi crap. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I just kind of wish, though, so there's a quote in Rules of Acquisition where Kira is saying about the Ferengi, they're greedy, misogynistic, untrustworthy little trolls, and I wouldn't turn my back on one of them for a second. And Jedzia Das goes, well, neither would I, but once you accept that, you'll find they can be a lot of fun. And, <laughs> I mean, yeah, okay. Compromise! Yeah, I mean, the... I'm you know, not condoning Kira's blanket racism in that quote, but certainly from the way that they treat them, I think today, uh, if I was treated like that, I would hope I would respond a lot more like Kira instead of just being like, oh, boys will be boys. Yeah. Well, I'm guessing from Dax's experience of having, you know, been a man a few times, she has a kind of different perspective on it. You think Dax is a dude, bro? Curzon sounds like he was. Yeah, he does. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> She's not going to let being a woman get in the way of her broing out. Sometimes you got to get your bro on. Bros before hosts. <laughs> <laughs> Ten points. Nice. <laughs> or we could just finish talking about Star Trek V because there's not that much else to go on. I was rewatching it this morning to watch the part where Captain Kirk drowns the three-rested Catwoman sex worker. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I didn't even know what was going on in that scene. I was like, something furry. I don't what know. What the hell is happening here? That was my reaction to the entire movie, though. So, um, it's totally a blink and you'll miss it moment, but basically, like, there's this sort of smuggler's den that is very much like, I think Sue pointed out in her live vlog, the Moss Eisley Cantina from Star Wars. Yeah. They do that a lot in these movies. Except terrible. And there is a cat woman dancer, a pole dancer, with three <laughs> breasts. Um, which are all, like, inexplicably where human breasts would be, even though, like, she's part cat, so I don't really... I'm like, why do they always have to have their boobs where human boobs would be? But anyway. And I've got some things to say about that if we uh, want to come back to that. More boob talk, please. Well, appar apparently the fact it was a selling point for this movie that they're like, okay, we gotta do this and this and this, but there's gotta be a chick with three boobs. Aliens. We gotta do that. That's the thing we have to have. Why am I not surprised? Yeah, that was like one of the, we can change whatever we want, this stays moments, apparently, in the planning of the movie. So it was like the Carol Marcus bra scene, only like less obvious? This part actually offends me more than the Carol Marcus thing, because they kill a sex worker. That's why it makes me think of the shapeshifter, because she's the first person I can remember in Star Trek actually saying, well, not everybody's sex organs are in the same place. <laughs> yeah. Even though boobs are secondary sex characteristics, yeah. still, it's funny. <laughs> yeah, totally. But when the Enterprise people invade the place in Paradise City... God, I. Why do they have to call it Paradise City? Take me down to the Paradise City where the grass is green and the girls, green are, and the girls are pretty. I want you to taste Where the grass is green and the girls got three titties. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so, this cat woman, who, like, never gets a name, obviously, because it's, like, just enough for the audience to know that she's a sex worker. Like, that's basically, she's dehumanized in addition to the fact that she's a cat by the fact that she's a sex worker. And that then she jumps on Kirk when Kirk is running into this thing and he basically like lifts her up and like hurls her into this pool. And it's not really clear whether she's dead, but they leave her lying what appears to be face down in the pool, totally unconscious. Um, it's kind of dark, so you can't say that for sure. But certainly like they do not seem concerned that he might have just killed this person yeah. who maybe was like a totally innocent bystander and it's yeah just like a disposable sex worker and it was really gross again that's why i've got more problems with this movie's sexism than into darkness just the fact that it's like oh my god he just killed that woman and we're not supposed to care at all it's just me per my personal preference though i hold keeping tomism slightly lower than murderer though yeah no i just meant in the marketing like that you were saying that they were like this has to be in <laughs> Yep. Boobies! I just picture these pitch meetings and everyone's like, well, boobs. 
gotta have more boobs. More boobs is better. More boobs. More boobs the better. Three times the boobs. Three times the fun. The proportion of boobs in this movie is still distinctly less than the Captain Kirk climbing a mountain parts. Like, that is like a good ten minutes. (laughs) There is a boob to mountain ratio in this movie that is unsettling. (laughs) When people are like, she was never vulnerable enough, I always bring up the one called Night, where it starts out with her in this extreme depression. She's not leaving her quarters. Chakotay and her are pretty much fighting, and that one always, just the way Star Trek Voyager dealt a lot with mental health in several different times, you know, Suicide was up, came up, what, three different episodes? And so... It, yeah, it came up a lot. Yeah, you had Quinn, you had Mortal Coil with Neelix, you had Extreme Risk with Milana. So, uh, to me, just, you know, I'm a teenager at that point. I'm you know, 14, 15, and I'm, she can do it, I can do it. I can get through this stuff, too. Yeah. And, yeah, it really showed her vulnerability in that case. And, again, she puts everything aside to save her crew, because you don't see her until that last moment when all of a sudden she comes in with a big old plasma rifle and like, all right, I got this, boys. I got this. Call her a freedom fighter, but she was a terrorist. Mm-hmm. And post 9-11, it's a different world in, in terms of what you... The fact that we could look at her without too much judgment, mm-hmm. really, um, and allow a leading character to have made mistakes, to have been so uh, flawed in many ways. Um, I, I, I did think that was groundbreaking. And at, in the first few years, I got a lot of pushback. I got a lot of people, even within... The, tre- the the tight world of the Trek world saying she was a bitch mm. and um, and for some reason I was able to have the fortitude to not care <laughs> and to go I know where this is leading and e- either you're going to get it or you won't but I'm not going to soften her mm-hmm. even though they did physically um, you know change my costume change my hair try this try that in the end, they didn't change Kira. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's super awesome. I think, um, I, like I was reading a quote from Iris Stephen Barrett who said that you know, some men feel threatened by Kira, but that's not because she's a bad character, but because we live in a screwed up society. Uh, I love that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, I'm glad that, uh, that you stuck to your guns on that. Any other specific episodes anybody wants to talk about? I want to talk about the one where we find out Pulaski banged Riker's dad. I really hope that's the, the episode Icarus title. Factor. No, no, the title is When Pulaski Banged Riker's Dad. His reaction to that is so great. Th- that scene in Ten Ford where she kisses Riker's dad and Riker's just in the corner like sulking and stroking <laughs> his beard and being like, rah, 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 rah. I love that so much. It makes me laugh so hard. I need to get a gif of uh, Riker stroking his beard sulkily from the Icarus Factor because it was glorious. <laughs> but you can just see he's thinking that that woman, that man, I want to look away, but I cannot because that woman and my dad. <laughs> it's like uh, meeting a parent's, I don't know, new <laughs> girlfriend or boyfriend after a divorce or something, right? But it's worse because it's his or co-worker. Old- yeah. It's his coworker, and he had no idea that he he was working closely with his dad's ex girlfriend. <laughs> then later on, he finds out that she would have totally married him. So that's like a lot of information coming. No at wonder this. he's brooding. How old is he? Thirty something. She could have been his mom in a cold minute. <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> oh, no, I I totally understand his reaction here. Poor Riker. I would cheer you up. I promise. They could go get Sundays with his girlfriend, <laughs> Troy. <laughs> oh, no. Uh, but I do think it's actually an interesting episode for Pulaski just in general, because we do get to see her be kind of unabashed with her her romantic past. Like, she straight up says that she's been married several times and she's cool with that and not shying away from the talking to she's not she doesn't act like it's anything that she needs to feel awkward about or ashamed about and i think that's really that's really cool and something that we didn't see enough for female characters on star trek yeah she was really candid and it made clear that she had a sexuality she still does and deal with it deal with it bro see this is such a weird thing to me because 
on the one hand, you have two really strong-willed women here that are both apparently okay with this ritual that is really heavily weighted towards the man. And actually, that's kind of the point of what T'Pring is doing, is she's trying to manipulate this system that really doesn't work well for her in a way that she can get what she wants. Absolutely. Yeah, she's doing the best she can with the the system that's in place, but it's just a pretty terrible system. And I mean, we've talked before about how, you know, people accuse Kirk of being the womanizer, but it's really Spock who says all the misogynistic things. Maybe this is why. (laughs) Because of Vulcan. (sighs) Right? Yeah. Freaking Vulcan, man. A listener comment on Facebook from Kathy who said there is a discussion in a fanzine back in the 70s of the greatest Trek villain of all time, and T'Pring was at the top of the list. The editor finally stepped in and stated T'Pring was not a villain. I've always gotten the impression T'Pring wanted somebody who was not away in Starfleet. Viewers forget Spock was away in Starfleet. He was not home on Vulcan. That does not make T'Pring a B-word. I mean, I think that's part of it. It's not just that, like, Spock was away, but, like, she didn't have feelings for him and he didn't even have feelings for her but she did have feelings for Stan. and at the end like she tells she explains to Spock basically like I did the only thing I could do in this situation to be with Stan and to be free and and he's basically like you're totally logical it's not I love how Spock's not even angry it's just like oh well played no yeah and she thanks him she's like thanks for the compliment I mean, obviously, it's not cool that she put people's life in danger, but she didn't really have another option other than be miserable for the rest of her life because of this weird, awful position she was put in by her society. Yeah, I was surprised when I realized there was a fan, a negative fan reaction to her, seemingly just for not wanting Spock, which is silly. And the reasons she gives are totally legitimate. Like, you're, I, I'm not sure if she mentions that, that he's away all the time, but she does mention, like, like, she doesn't want to be in the public eye like she would be if if they were a couple or married or whatever. And that, you know, she has someone there who she actually does want to be with and he wants to be with her. And they don't even really know each other that well. I mean, all of these things are legitimate. Yeah, apparently in one of the novels, um, obviously it's non-canon, but she... Uh like, comes back and tries to get revenge on Kirk and Spock it's because Stan died. It's Spock's world. Is that in Spock's? Yeah, it's Diane Dwayne. It's so good. Okay. Hey. If you guys have not read Spock's <laughs> world, just our listeners, if you haven't read it, read it. Yeah. It is so good. Um, Especially, like, later on. First of all, T'Pring does come back, and she's more villainous in that version, but it's kind of like her life has not gone the way she wants, and so she's kind of bitter. Um, But the the whole book is just really really interesting it goes into the history of Vulcan and um especially uh Surak and his philosophy and how it shaped Vulcan and it is top notch book definitely read it but from the title i can only imagine it's like Wayne's world but with Vulcan it's exactly right <laughs> exactly right and then um you know logic time most excellent <laughs> party on spock Party on Stan. Logic time. Fascinating. <laughs> yes. uh, yeah, we have um, the Naked Time on here as well, and the Naked Time is just an overall great episode. But the reason that it's on our list is basically for a single line, and it's a single line. It's one of my favorites. It's one of the cleverest lines when Sulu is all hopped up and. He, he grabs Uhura and says, I'll protect you, fair maiden. And, and she's just got so much spirit. Sorry, neither. <laughs> <laughs> it's so clever. That is a Gene Roddenberry line that, again, he had to fight for. No kidding. And you be- it's one of those, if you blink it and you'll miss, you blink and you'll miss it lines. But it's just great. Like, the first time I saw this episode, I had to rewind it and be like, wait, what? Did she just say what I think she did? Holy crap, she did. It's great. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, if you actually look up that quote online, um, you will, there are message boards with people who didn't get the joke. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> how do you not? I I don't understand. Poor well, bastards. maybe when you were a kid, and also I think the um, and this is why I think it's so clever: the use of the word "fair," mm-hmm. because I feel like 
at this point, we start to use the word fair in this context to just mean beautiful. But what it actually means is Which pale. is racially biased also. Yep. That's exactly, yeah. it's exactly what it was. Yes. So <laughs> I think there are some people who didn't get the maiden part of it, but I think more people didn't get the fair part of it. Sorry, oh. neither. I'm not pale and I'm not a maiden. Um, I just think it's such a clever play on words and actually very subversive. It just, even thinking about it, back to it, it makes me laugh. And her delivery is so perfect. Just so catty. It's fantastic. It's definitely <laughs> one of those. If you're watching it in a group, that's the point where you should be like, everybody shut up! They're about to say the line! Right. <laughs> Agreed. Maybe, maybe they were just distracted because Sulu had a shirt off. I don't know. It is pretty distracting. I mean, he was. I mean, he is, he is pretty distracting as a young man. I'm not, I'm not even gonna. It's a great nope. scene nope, all across the board right. then. Yeah. Total fan. There's a reason why when I think of the naked time, the first thing I think of is an oiled George Takei and a sword. <laughs> <laughs> I just love how big it is. I, I mean, he didn't do... <laughs> I, one, I mean, in this... <laughs> That's not what I meant. But also, like, in this episode, they originally had written him uh, brandishing a samurai sword and thinking he was a samurai. And uh, he was like, actually, I'm really interested in fencing. So how about we make me Errol Flynn? And I'm very glad they went in that direction and it rocked. Yeah, I, I think part of the conversation, as I remember it, is they said, yeah, but, but Sulu's Japanese. He's like, yeah, but I'm American. It's a little too much like what we see even going on today. Because Bashir makes the comment, even in this time, there's effective treatment for them. With the right medicine, they could live a full and normal life. They don't need to be out on mm-hmm. the streets. And, like, even in our world, people will get locked up. They'll be put in jail or somewhere rather than getting the treatment they need because we're always so short beds in mental health hospitals and the government is just overworked and underfunded and doesn't have the resources to take care of everybody, much like we see in this episode. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think it was really important that that be an aspect of this because you're right certainly i used to work for an elected official and a large chunk of the casework was people coming in with mental health issues um who just like had exhausted all their options and you know the district office that we see the massive lines and making you fill out 20 pages of ridiculous forms and that you would have got better treatment if you were like a gimme versus a dim that is not an inaccurate representation of like a social services office today, even in Canada. And um, people with mental health issues are like, sometimes they can be less able to advocate for themselves or they can be, um, you know, have harder times like waiting in a crowded room with a whole bunch of people for hours or determining a form. And so like, there's all these additional barriers that make it harder for those people in an already hard situation. Yeah. Um, when I was in college, I worked as an intern at a welfare assistance center. So I can tell you the scene when they're talking to the social worker and there's a point of her again saying, I know I shouldn't be using these words, but it's easier to categorize that way. Essentially, that is not uncommon. It's uncomfortable to be there. And it definitely is uncomfortable for the people who are there looking for assistance. And it's unfortunately something that happens a lot. Yeah. It's almost like they make it harder the system makes it harder for people to obtain any benefits and they're trying to like under the you know premise i guess of trying to keep costs down they uh, make people jump through all these hoops but then you end up in a worse situation in worse health unable to get on your feet because you haven't even been granted like the least shred of dignity there are some services that are made especially hard to seek because the harder they are to seek, the less people are going to go through all the way to try and get them and the less people they have to provide that service to. Oh, even in my own life, there are examples of this. I have a couple of people I care about with some serious mental health issues. And one of them to get treatment, he had to say that he was suicidal to even be admitted anywhere. He couldn't just get the minimum amount because they didn't have any openings there. So, you know, like the hoops you have to jump through, the extra lengths you have to go to to get treatment are just ridiculous. Yeah, one of my loved ones um, has some mobility impairment, and just in order to get, to pretty much be counted as someone who has a disability, they were told, go in to get um, marked as disabled, but go in on your worst day possible. Go in when everything physically looks wrong with you. And this was an official counselor giving them this advice. 
mm-hmm. saying that that was the best way to get the help they needed. Yeah, absolutely. There are so many systems and services that exist but are not publicized, and in order to even receive them, for people who need them, you really have to be an advocate for yourself. And there are so many people who can't do that because the systems are so complicated, because there might be other issues at play. And it it's as true in, in this example of Star Trek as it is in the real world. Janice Rand, super hair. <laughs> do you know what is under there? A secrets and a milk steamer. I can tell you what's under there. A wig cap and some bobby pins. <laughs> Everybody rammed now. Uh, 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 uh. <laughs> Sweet Janice Rand. Dun, dun, dun. Beehives never looked so good. So good. So good. So good. I've been inclined. Bum, bum, bum. To warm coffee with the phaser. Dangerous to try! <laughs> we also just came back from getting tattoos. Yeah, Woo. We're officially a girl gang now. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I actually completely freaked out when I was getting my tattoo. I didn't think I would. And I sat down and he turned on the, the needle thing, whatever that is, and it started making that noise. And I was like, nope, 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 nope. And also no. And I ran away. Uh, but Sue, Sue coaxed me back and, um, held my hand and helped me. Stroke of genius. (laughs) (laughs) Helped me recite Ode to Spot, which, if anybody remembers Sue and I's original All Things Trek appearance, uh, Ode to Spot is very near and dear to both Sue and I. And, um, I, I forgot a lot of the words when I was, you know, terrified and in pain, but we did still have a fun time reciting that and, um, got me through. The tattoo artist at the end was like, thanks for not punching me in the face. Cause I guess that was a fear. And also thanks for not passing out. And also <laughs> a tattoo artist in the next stall over heard you guys chanting in rhyme and thought you were praying. <laughs> well, we kind of were. <laughs> To spot our patron saint. The tattoo artists were also very sick of Star Trek today, so they had been forced to watch Star Trek VI on repeat and mute, mute and repeat, for, like, the last week. So, and they were not Star Trek fans, so like, we're so sick of this movie. <laughs> Again, though, as uh, as Andy's tattoo artist said, I haven't seen it, but uh, it looks pretty badass. <laughs> yeah. Question mark at the end there. But uh, me and Sue got Infinite Diversity and Infinite Combinations little logos on our ankles, and Andy got a Delta Shield on her wrist, and I think they look pretty cool. They're awesome. Yesterday on our panel, um, Bijo and I were on a panel on women in Star Trek. You talked a little bit about what science fiction conventions were like before Star Trek, and how do you feel like Star Trek changed science fiction fandom? Well... I think it actually made it okay for women uh, and and girls, little girls even, to uh, admit they read hello and that they read science fiction, and and that they because you know that was important to a lot of people, and then they because uh, uh, you would end up with with you know girls who had learn to play dumb, you know, and and that exists still in some societies that, you know, and you can't, you can't sound intelligent. Well, you're in a society here where that sounding intelligent is a plus. And admitting that you read and admitting that you want to go into the sciences. And I think Star Trek influenced that enormously. And by the way, that made Gene very proud. He loved reading letters from people who were going to go into the sciences, who were studying to be astronauts, who were, you know, all of this. And that that Star Trek was one of the influences on it. He just loved that. I mean, well, Spock is actually really interesting for that reason, because we don't really see any women, well, we see, so we get to Paul, to Pow and to Pring. We've talked about women in Vulcan society a bit in our episode on Amok Time, but you kind of get the sense that Vulcans are a bit of a patriarchy, other than T'Pau, but, like, that their familial relationships are patriarchal, at least based on what we see in the original series. 
But even more than that, the idea of logic and science has a really long background of being treated as inherently masculine and to the point that there's a lot of deliberate efforts in casting today to try and help girls and women to feel safe exploring science and math. So I think that it would have been really groundbreaking at the time to see a woman play a logical character. And I mean, some people would even say that that is why number one didn't succeed at the time was that the audience wasn't even really ready for that kind of logic based character in a woman. Yeah. And even though Spock is certainly sassy at times, (laughs) unless you're really watching that character, uh, he could just come off as cold. Right. And that, you know, cold and logical would have been really risky for a woman to play. It even now is. In in the late 60s. Yeah, it's, it's true. But it would have been uh, such a further addition to kind of the rebellious nature of the character of Spock in having that character not only be um, a Vulcan who's working with humans and kind of going outside of the Vulcan comfort zone, but to also be a woman going outside of the societal comfort zone and in a in a patriarchal society as we've perceived it that would be really interesting wouldn't it yeah absolutely i think it definitely would have been risky but you know it would have also been really cool there's there's letters in letters to star trek from like a little girl who wants to pitch herself being cast as like spock's niece or something on a show and we know that there were little girls at the time, who looked up to Spock just like there are now. And yeah, I mean, just imagine what it would have, would have meant to have a role model like that at the time. That would have been fantastic. Basically, Journey's End is my favorite of the native indigenous episodes, but but I still yeah, have some great. issues with it because, and there's a there's a larger issue that I, that maybe we could get into later on, but one, uh, the, 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 the indigenous characters, and especially what we later learned as the traveler, he he's talking about specific aspects of the of their culture that he's telling to Wesley, and he mentions basically a sweat lodge type scenario, but he calls it a habak or something. Mm-hmm. And I started looking up these words, like what is he saying? What nation does that come from? Mm-hmm. And I couldn't place it. And now it's because they are pretty much made up. But then at the same time, when he when Anthwara is talking to Picard, he mentions the specific. Uh, Pueblo rev- revolt of uh, 1680 mm-hmm. and the Spanish and New Mexico. So I'm like, that's, that's real history. Like they're tying it into actual reality of U.S. history. But then on the flip side, um, they're kind of like fudging what they're telling to Wesley. And maybe that's because the traveler really don't know what he's talking about. I mean, there's quite the theories about that, but I remember reading that initially they wanted to make the whole uh, episode revolve specifically around the Hopi. And the Kachina dolls, but then mm-hmm. it got changed in later in the script. And, um, so that there's even within the best episode uh, for native representation, indigenous representation, there's still some issues there too. Yeah. That homogenization is like really, really classic. I think from what, you know, we've been able to see anyway across science fiction and fantasy and speculative fiction, right? It's like, cause it's, it's not really necessarily about indigenous people as people. It's, it's what we represent as symbols. Mm-hmm. And what, and like, you know, cause sci-fi, the good sci-fi is, is all about working through different problems, right? It's about people working together through different problems and trying to answer big questions, right? And so, you know, living in, um, ongoing colonial societies, indigenous people are still one of those big issues that, you know, the mainstream is trying to wrap its head around and, and figure out how to essentially deal with the, you know, quote unquote Indian problem. And so it's not about us as people who are like full human beings who, you know, have our own agency. It's about, you know, what, what do we represent? What are these images? And so like, we're, we're kind of this exotic, almost like a homegrown exotic that like you can mm. slap this, these aesthetics on and you can like make up, you know, languages and you can make up whole tribes and whole nations sometimes. Right. Yeah. And you know, it doesn't matter because it's not actually about us. We're just a plot device, yeah, right? Totally. It's either to make, make people feel guilty or to like provide redemption, you know, and in Wesley's case, like to, you know, it's always the white guy who becomes more Indian than the Indians, right? Like he's, we're, we're how you find yourself <laughs> in one way or another. Right. Yeah. And, and then he out Indians, the Indians. 
Of always. Is, oh, always. Always. <laughs> Kirk is the perfect example with that. Oh, my oh, God. That was so own. great. Yeah, he's better Indian than the Indians are. Oh. I am Karak. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and that's another thing. He, it, it, to me, that also echoed the stories about the, the Aztecs and the South American uh, indigenous people treating the conquistadors as gods. And then you mm-hmm. see Kirk actually come out of the obelisk and they're calling him a god. But mm-hmm. again, it, it's like hit and miss because they're trying to be, you know, positive about it or, or inclusive. But then in that episode, um, Paradise Syndrome, when they first see the natives, the, the indigenous people across the water, Spock references the Navajo, Mohican and Delaware. But then they're all in generic fringe, you know, made up attire. There's teepees, which none of the three nations that he mentioned yeah. lived in teepees. <laughs> so it's like, you know, they, they're mentioning real native nations again, but then they're also like, they fall short again. And then another thing that really rubbed me the wrong way, even back when I was seeing it, you know, in reruns is that Spock also calls them some of the more advanced, uh, try, mm. try, yes. the, yeah. the more advanced and peaceful tribes. But then later in the episode, Kirk is explaining to Miramani the concept of irrigation and then yeah. Food, yeah. food preservation, <laughs> yeah. which to me, it's like, for one, native indigenous people already knew about agriculture and and uh, irrigation and all pre- food preservation. But then for Spock to call them these are the more advanced natives, and then Kirk still has to teach them about an oil lamp yeah. and irrigation. Now it's just like it just yeah. And she can't take off his shirt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, well, I mean that's the thing though, right? I think it it speaks more to what you know, to what settlers and, and invaders um, think as being like good qualities of the good Indians than, yeah. you know, what's actually going on, right? Like the more advanced and peaceful tribes probably in this case mean the ones who are like more welcoming to the colonizer. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Not, not necessarily saying that the Mohicans and the Delaware were, um, but you know, that's, that's sort of the good Indian, right? They, they, Chelsea calls it pointing the finger, right? <laughs> so, like, the white people point the finger, and these are the good Indians, and these are the bad Indians. And Miramani, in particular, is, like, always the good Indian. Yeah. She's passive. She's, like, hypersexualized. She wants to take off his shirt, even though she can't figure it out. Like, <laughs> right? Everything everything the settler wants. Yeah. Oh, yes. She, she's the ultimate fantasy of the Indian woman. Even right down to the fact that the Indian woman who marries the white guy must die. It is, it's yeah. a, it is a given in Hollywood. They must die. Yeah, and I, I actually read um, something about that. Apparently, originally she wasn't going to die, but the network made them rewrite the script because they were worried about implications of miscegenation. Of course. Right? So, like, this half-breed kid being born and then Kirk <laughs> just, like, effing off the planet, right? Right. They couldn't have that, so she has to die. Let's talk about Ponfar. There's a lot to talk about with Ponfar. So, it's it's a weird situation, right, where, like, there's this biological urge that you cannot control that in itself takes away your ability to make a choice. It takes away any agency that you have in the situation. Yeah, absolutely. And certainly with, I think with both to Paul and with Balana, it's like, they're very scared. There's like fear about what's happening to them. Um, I mean, we see that from Spock as well. Like there's, he very, he's really doesn't want to have to go through Ponfar, but uh, with, uh, Bolana, especially, it's striking because she isn't Vulcan. She goes through it because she's assaulted by Vorek. And there is this scene where, um, she's basically begging Paris to have sex with her because she's under the spell upon Far and she will like die otherwise. And, um, Paris is like, no, I don't want it to be this way. You have to be able to consent, which is like kind of cool, but also like she's gonna die, man. <laughs> well, and then Tuvok basically orders Paris to have sex with her, and then thankfully she can instead just punch Vorik a lot and it goes away. But uh because sex and violence, same thing as we've talked about before. Yeah, it's weird. Or maybe everyone just gets off on hurting Vorik. <laughs> it's cool that. Um, Paris can be like, just because you're saying you want it, it's very, very clear to me you can't actually consent right now. Right, because she's being influenced by something outside of her control. Exactly. And then we also get a Zetbur, 
in Undiscovered Country, who yes. is definitely one of my favorites. Yeah. Definitely oh my one of gosh. my favorites. She's just so regal. Yeah, I was going to yes. say, she mm-hmm. definitely never dropped her crown, even when her dad died. I know. Mm-hmm. She was like what Queen Elizabeth wished she was doing during the Princess Die thing, but right. just did not. <laughs> Besides, right. she didn't have that awesome sort of chain maily looking dress going on. Mm-hmm. We actually got a lot of comments on on her from Facebook. Um, one of them from Alejandra was, Izette Burr is my favorite. I read the Star Trek VI novel by J.M. Dillard, and there they explored her character more, how because she was, she was female in a Klingon society, she wasn't really respected as a diplomat or a Klingon. They also explored her love life and the struggle to choose between duty and love. I just think that's lovely. She was she was one of those characters that doesn't actually have a whole lot of screen time if you like lay it out, but makes a huge impact. Yeah, yeah. she definitely ate up all of the scenery. And that's saying something. One, like you said, because she didn't have a lot of lines, but also because she's staring, you know, a, a camera with the cast of TOS and Christopher Plummer and all oh of these, gosh. you know, stellar, incredible actors. And at the same time, while they're talking, I can't stop looking at her. Yeah. Yeah. She's a steal- scene stealer for sure. And one of probably my favorite Klingon outfits that we've seen in all of Star Trek. I just got to put that out there. Just the combination of that standard Klingon aesthetic mixed with her sort of regal diplom- diplomatic thing. I just love it. I have a feeling that this this crew, before they stepped onto the Enterprise for this, you know, for this dinner, for this diplomatic summit, if you will, they were like, all right, guys, no effing around. Bring out your good shit, okay? No 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 no, 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 Put that back. Break out the good leather we bought on Karth a couple years ago. Yeah, that one. Get that one. Shine your shoes. Shine, shine your boots, too. Shine your headpiece. Right. We're all going through the matching red leather. We're making this work, okay? Okay. Trust me, they won't know what to do. They'll be, they'll be eaten out of our hands. Freak them out with glam. Freak them out with glam. The other thing that I like about her, too, is that she calls out racism. Oh, yeah. And I love that about her. She really does. She And she does it both subtle and straightforward. But there, there's a, a couple times where you can really just see her going, really? Yeah, really? the whole, like, you know, you know, listen to yourself talking about human rights. The very concept is racist. Yeah. Yep. It is. And she's completely right. And uh, it's just one of those subtle things in language that a lot of times people don't think about. And there are a lot of, you know... Uh, examples in our real world with the fact that she calls out a microaggression in in this like tiny little things that the humans are not paying any attention to and she's just like no that's not gonna fly with me i dig it so much yeah like even in um in french today the more common term for human rights is like droit de l'homme like men's rights essentially even though that's it's supposed to mean human rights but i mean uh, but a lot of groups and People use like droit de les personnes and apologies for the terrible pronunciation, which is actually like human rights. But there are like there's still modern languages today that have like really gendered language. So it was kind of cool to yeah be able to draw that parallel. I, I just enjoyed that that particular moment um, where she checks them on you know the microaggression because coming from a Klingon, you know everybody stopped and was like, oh, you're right, maybe maybe I should. Maybe I should think about this and, and correct myself going forward. Whereas, you know, as human women, as we point out and attempt to correct microaggressions, people are like, ah, okay, so it's have a seat. Yeah. And if you stand up and, and stand up for yourself or defend your point of view, then it's, you know, angry feminists and they've checked out instantly. So, yeah. uh, you know, it, it, her her standing up for that and, and doing it with without dropping her crown was so much more or at least it resonated with me more so than, I think, uh, a, a guy who would have watched that scene. I think it's a little bit ambiguous on whether or not Soren is actually, quote-unquote, converted, which also gives us a lot of different Im- interpretations. This is interesting, because it's like, I totally get the complaints that they didn't show the horrors of conversion therapy, or maybe she was faking it. And like, I do root for a happy ending. I kind of feel like this episode is always going to head this way. And I, it, yeah, it sucks that it's yet another bury your gaze sort of episode. And, but also, like, for me, personally, I think that a, that she wasn't faking it, and B, the conversion therapy 
that like it, there's no lasting scars or whatever. I think the point for me is that it doesn't matter. Like, like let's say conversion therapy in real life was just perfect. You could zap a ray at someone and change them to being straight or cis. But would that be okay? Like, if there's no actual harm and you're just mind controlling people, is that okay? No, it's not. It doesn't matter. You're taking away her identity. You're forcing her to be something else it doesn't matter whether it's torture or not and for me i think it's really effective because it says the problem isn't whether or not you're hurting people physically or whether or not you're hurting people mentally even if you had a perfect ray that could just fix people it's terrifying you saw who she was stripped away and that hurts that in and of itself is torture right you're taking away someone's um, humanity, Star Trek, like, especially TOS did this all the time with their, like, societies that are controlled by computers, con- mind controlling mm-hmm. people and taking away who they are. And, and I think it's effective to viewers, some viewers. I mean, like, it depends, but I think there is an effective narrative there where it's like, even if it was perfect, a lot of people empathized and were rooting for them. And I think that's sort of effective where it's like, oh no, she's gone. That's terrifying. That's, that's awful. Yeah. That leads right into one of uh, another, one of our Facebook comments that kind of reacted to Peter's view that the conversion therapy part was not well done. And that was from Keith who said, I think the conversion therapy was the best part because it came off as a horror movie reveal. For me, before this episode, I was against gay folk, all for conversion therapy and all of that shit. So this episode showed me the humanity of people of any orientation and what if you got what you wanted, Keith? Behold, she's been cured. So not only do I learn what a piece of shit I've been about the topic, I get to see the sad horror of what it would look like if I got what I wanted for gay folk back then. The conversion was the great final punch that was needed for myself and others to never forget the lesson. So I think that's really interesting. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I mean, he he commented a couple times in a couple different places, and he straight up said that this episode changed how he viewed gay people. Yeah, and in one of the comments, the one I remember the most clearly, he said it made me realize I was the bad guy. Which is really powerful, and which is why this stuff matters. We get some criticism sometimes that we are just, you know, trying to find things to be upset about. No. (laughs) Storytelling matters, media matters, how we show humanity in our stories matters and can change minds. And so Star Trek is an amazing vehicle for that. And here is a great example of someone who went into that episode thinking one way and it changed his mind, which I think is one of the most effective ways to teach people to have empathy for others is to have them see stories like this. I think it's an interesting aspect of Klingon culture in a way, because we know from what we know about Klingons, that the only honorable death is dying in battle, mm-hmm. right? So you've got these three Klingons who are all great friends and they swore this blood oath together and they're all getting up there in age. We don't know how long Klingons would live naturally, but they're clearly older. And it's almost like a suicide pact in a way now that he's made this deal with the albino. He's like, all right, so that we die honorable deaths, Let's go and take care of this thing we said we were going to do, and then we're fulfilling everything we need to before we die. It kind of makes you wonder if that's a standard practice in Klingon culture. If just sending Grandpa out into the wilderness when there's a bunch when it's wild boar season versus letting him die in a convalescent home or something, if that's how they they culturally decide to do it. Makes you wonder. I mean, they even say that, that, you know, it's too bad that Curzon didn't die an admirable death or an honorable death because he was in the hospital when he died. Right. Yeah. But, um, you know, speaking of Curzon, that it becomes pretty clear pretty quick that Dax is more than just like Curzon 2.0. Mm-hmm. Well, we as the audience knew that too. Yeah, but like the, the plan would have been a suicide mission for everyone had it been hers on. But because Jadzia has all this science experience, she can science her way out of it. Science. (laughs) (laughs) That is, again, the beauty of Dax as a character, getting to have all those different layers of being an individual, but also all that past experience. 
Mm-hmm. Mm. Which definitely makes this a top Dax episode for me, at least. Yeah. So then we're at Steve's compound. Steve's high concept compound. <laughs> yes. Which Jedzia has, you know, got all the sentries to have their phasers not working and set off a bomb or set off the bomb that that Steve set for them as a trap. Mm-hmm. Did he really, though? Or is he just at a point where he's 100 years old, really racist, and just has booby traps all over his yard? <laughs> also possible. I'm just saying. Well, and you, I mean, just back to the age thing again, you could assume that the Klingons are about the same age as, as Steve. Right. This whole episode is just an old man fight. Yeah, but so much more. It's not just like, what were those movies with, like, Helen Mirren and... Red, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Red Klingons. It also kind of reminds me of the Discworld character, Cohen the Barbarian. Oh my gosh, not yes! Conan, Cohen. <laughs> And they they get the horde together and go on this, like, one final mission. You guys, you guys, I'm going to pitch an idea to you here. Yeah. Klingon Expendables. (laughs) Yes. I mean, that's kind of what this was, only way more poignant. But could we get Randy Couture in Klingon makeup, is my question. Mm. Mm. Otherwise, we can start talking about Star Trek V which is the infamous three-breasted Catwoman stripper dancer person. And uh, Kirk murders her, or maybe murders her? We don't know. It's not even important enough to make it clear. I wouldn't. Honestly, are you shocked? Would you be shocked either? Like, would you be shocked? I'd be shocked if you didn't. Yeah, I mean, but the thing that makes it so annoying, though, is, like, it's not clear. But the fact that they didn't even bother to make it clear, like, they didn't care enough to make it to make it explicit whether or not she survived, that is something gross all on its own. It's just the fact that, like, it, it's once again representing that, like, our lives really don't matter. Like, who cares? Like, we serve a plot device, and then it, and then we, and then outside of that, we just don't matter. And that's like a very common way that sex workers are represented in media it's not just star trek it's everything it's like we exist to serve a serve your point and then like our ultimate ultimately our humanity and our lives don't matter you know and that also spills over into the real world when you have the police investigating deaths of sex workers and in many cases really not taking it seriously or disappearances um the case in um, Vancouver where I'm from, from of the uh, missing and murdered women in the downtown east side is a really classic example where the police for years and years and years denied what people on the ground were saying that there was a serial killer loose because they're like, oh, they're a sex worker. They probably just like left. They probably just ran away and didn't tell anyone. And it was pretty awful. And of course, intersected in that case with uh, race quite strongly um, but like these portrayals matter. And when you treat sex workers as disposable in media, it does not help the situation of them being treated as disposable in real life. Exactly. And that's the same, the same with missing, missing folk from the gay village in Toronto, MacArthur, caught mm. yeah. who's facing a sex murder. The police are, and like with Alora Wells, like we, like Maggie's in Toronto and the, mm-hmm. my, the sex work community were out looking for her. We were looking for her and the police refused to look for her because mm-hmm. she might've just run away. It turns out the her body was in the morgue all these months mm-hmm. they just didn't give a shit to identify her and that's just it just speaks to these media representations of how sex workers are disposable relate right back into like how the public and how the police treat us like they just didn't bother to identify her body this is what happens when you don't give a shit about sex workers all right well those were awesome clips that we just listened to ah <laughs> <laughs> uh. Andy, I love you so much. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not a professional, okay? I feel like I just woke up after being bitten by like an alien plant bug. <laughs> Snap out of it, Jared. And I was like angry, but I was also happy. And I was also like kind of aroused at times. And it was a little <laughs> weird because like all y'all were kind of like standing there. 
And yeah, but I mean, I think I'm going to be okay now. Much better transition, Jara. Much better than mine. But they were awesome clips. We could not do what we do here without the support of our patrons. So thank you to all of you who support us on Patreon. If you would like to support us on Patreon, you can head over to patreon.com slash women at warp because we can't get through an episode without one of us saying that. Thank you all so much for listening and for your patronage and for being there. And I hope you all keep watching the stars and the shows. I hope there are more shows to watch. I really do. Thank you. And thank you for tweeting about us. And thank you for Facebooking about us and Instagramming about us. And all of those places, you can find us at Women at Warp. You can find us online at womenatwarp.com. And again, the full list of episodes we chose clips from will be in our show notes. And if you'd like to send us an email, you can do so at crew at womenatwarp.com. Thank you.